0: So I think the question that I'm wondering and that our entire audience is wondering, Carla, is which celebrity would you swim through poop to to meet? Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies.
1: With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hi, and welcome to Pennies and Popcorn. We have a fun episode for you today. We are talking about the 2008 smash hit Slumdog Millionaire.
0: Yes, spoiler warning for those of you who haven't seen the movie. uh, It came out in 2008. It's a love story set in India based around the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire?
1: Yes, we will be giving away some fairly significant plot points today. But come on, guys, if you haven't seen it, one best picture like 13 years ago get your act together if you want to see these kinds of great movies you got to see them soon. yeah
0: uh, it didn't just win best picture it won eight oscars
1: another fun fact about it winning best picture that year so this was just before the oscars started putting up 10 films for best picture so in 2008 there were only five films up for best picture and i don't want to take anything away from slumdog millionaire because it is a fantastic film and it probably would have beaten out a lot of other movies But the competition that year was not exactly stiff, in my opinion. So the other movies that were up that year are The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which, you know, good, not great, in my terribly not humble opinion. A
0: lot of staying power and, you know, social currency. But, yeah, not a long-term hit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frost-Nixon, which is one of those movies that I probably fell asleep during, if I'm being completely honest.
0: Most people would watch it once and probably not again.
1: Yeah. Um, Milk, which I I think was pretty good, but also, you know, not really something you want to watch over and over again. And The Reader, again, very high quality film, but not exactly, like, stimulating.
0: It's not the most uplifting movie.
1: For sure. So, yeah, Slumdog Millionaire, I... Don't remember that far back if it was the clear favorite at the time, but it was probably my clear favorite at the time.
0: If it won eight out of the 10 Oscars it was nominated for, I'm sure it was um, definitely the clear favorite.
1: So let's first do just a quick recap of the movie, because it has been about 13 years since it came out. Long time. Refresh folks' memories. So Some Dog Millionaire is mostly a love story. It's a very sweet love story between Jamal and Latika two young people in India who meet at a very young age and are star-crossed lovers, torn apart and thrown back together again several different times. So our protagonist is Jamal. And when we first meet him, he is a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And the story is mostly told through flashbacks. We see Jamal growing up in India, With his brother Salim.
0: They're the two musketeers, Athos and Porthos.
1: Right. And the flashbacks are not only to, you know, tell the story of the two boys, but also to reveal how Jamal learned the answers to many of the questions that he's being asked on the game show. So Jamal and Salim grow up in India and long story short, have an extremely difficult childhood, orphaned at a very young age.
0: Tragedy and trauma one after the other.
1: Right. And along the way, as young children, they meet Latika, who Jamal very much wants to be the third musketeer.
0: Salim, not so much.
1: Yeah. Salim is about Salim. He is looking out for number one all the time. And anybody who wants to encroach on that, including Jamal, um, he's often not, not about that at all. So yeah, it's the story of these three young people and their lives intertwining and how it all culminates in this amazing experience of Jamal getting to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire.
0: And trying to reconnect with Latika.
1: Yes, yes, the star-crossed lovers trying to find each other over the year waves eventually. So it really is a beautiful story. I, I think that about sums it up, couldn't I think so. Yeah. So how much money is Jamal playing for?
0: He's playing for 20 million rupees, which in 2008 was about $436,000. If we want to move that forward to today's dollars, it's about $555,000. So a little bit less than the U.S. version of the show, but still a life-changing amount of money, probably an even more life-changing amount of money uh, if you're living in India, where that money will actually go a little bit further and the standard of living, in many cases, is a lot lower.
1: Yeah, it's certainly presented as a life-changing sum of money.
0: So let's talk a little about Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, we were both around when that show came out. How big of a deal was that in your life?
1: It was just a huge part of, I guess that would have been like early high school for me when it came out.
0: August 1999.
1: Yeah, so I would have been sophomore in high school. And my family was just, we loved the show just like everybody did. It was a cultural phenomenon. You couldn't get away from it. And, you know, I've always loved trivia, and so I really enjoyed watching that show. And, yeah, I'll never forget the, the music and the lights, and it all just felt revolutionary at the time. There hadn't been a game show quite like that before.
0: Yeah, I think it really sort of ushered in a new wave of reality TV for people with high production quality, uh, the, the fast blitz of all those shows. So they released in August. They had a two-week special where it was on every night. And it was must-see television. We all had to watch it, and it did so well, they put it out another couple-week version, I think it was in November of 1999, and then it became a regular weekly show. And for a very long time, I remember watching all the episodes and being into it. And watching it, it was a really, it was just different. It was so eye-popping, and it, it pulled you in. It had the drama and the intrigue. Regis did such a great job hosting. But at some point, it faded from the forefront for me. I don't know if it's because I went to college, because it went into syndication, it wasn't on primetime anymore, but uh, would you believe that it is still on today?
1: Yeah, that is so hard for me to wrap my head around. I cannot believe that someone somewhere is still watching that show today, because I get faded into the distance <clears> well over a decade ago for me.
0: Yeah, so uh, Late Night host Jimmy Kimmel is currently hosting the program. You probably remember Regis Philbin. And you probably remember that Meredith Vieira, or Vieira, pardon me, Meredith. I, I think it's Vieira. Name, I
1: think you got it right the first okay.
0: time. <laughs> uh, she hosted it for a long time and was a great follow-up to Regis. But there were actually three other hosts as well that I haven't listed. How many of them do you think you can name? Zero. Zero? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. So there was Cedric the Entertainer. Oh my who did gosh. it for a little while. I bet that was fun. I kind of want to go look up some of those episodes. I could see him <laughs> just having a good time with, uh, with the contestants.
1: Definitely did not know that one.
0: Uh, they decided they need a different. Uh, they needed a different physique for the host, so they went from Cedric the Entertainer to Terry Crews next. Okay. So a little different body build there. Okay. Um, Terry Crews did it for a little while, and then interestingly, uh, I'm pretty sure you know this next guy, Chris Harrison. <laughs> he hosted it for a while, so. For those of you who don't know, Chris Harrison is the beloved host of The Bachelor Bachelorette. Maybe not beloved.
1: Negative ghostwriter. Chris Harrison has been unceremoniously ousted for some racist comments. Oh. Mm -hmm. No longer the host of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or allowed to say anything in public associated with The Bachelor or The Bachelorette.
0: Well, we hate that guy. And good thing he got kicked off of (laughs) Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in favor of Jimmy Kimmel.
1: There we go. There we go. Justice all around. uh,
0: So Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a huge thing back in the day. Uh, If you don't remember the show, there's a series of questions. They all have four choices. You get a couple of lifelines. One of the lifelines is ask the audience. So I I actually looked up the ask the audience thing because I was really curious how often the audience knows what's up and how often Mm. they don't. Uh, They usually do because they're often used on early questions in the show rather than the late ones which are harder. But actually on the third episode, the audience got it wrong. Seventy percent of the audience got it wrong. Wow. So it wasn't like there was some even distribution and everyone the the, the person on the show just went with the most popular answer. No, 70% of the audience picked an answer which has got to give you a lot of confidence that's the right answer.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't for me.
0: So Carla how would you have done if you were a part of the audience? Do you want to know?
1: <laughs> yes, please tell me the question.
0: Okay. It, it was a question for $64,000, so it was a tough one. I don't expect you to know the answer. And hey, if you get it wrong, you're with the 70 per... Only, only 70% of the people came up with the one wrong answer, so less than that actually got it right. Got it. So, the name of what toy translates into English as play well? A. Atari. B. Yo-yo. C, Hacky Sack, or D, Lego?
1: Well, I have played with all of those toys, but I never knew that any of them meant play well. It can't possibly be Yo-Yo. Hacky Sack doesn't make any sense. I think I'm going to go with Atari.
0: Well, congratulations. You are as good as the audience. (laughs) Oh, no. You chose the 70% answer. Yeah, everyone thought Atari. The actual correct answer is Lego. Uh, 12% of people in the audience got that right. More people thought it was Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo? Yeah. Seems kind of goofy. Don't like
1: it. Don't like it. But
0: anyway, there's the (laughs) ask the audience. There's a 50-50 where they eliminate two of the wrong answers for you. So you only have to choose between two answers. And then there's the phone a friend. Yeah. And those are the original version lifelines it's changed a bunch over time if you're gonna have a show that's on for 20 years you got to do little things to make it work uh, interestingly season one which regis hosted i looked up some data the average winnings on the show were seventy four thousand hmm, dollars not bad which is not bad at all
1: especially in 1999 money
0: yeah yep. yeah that's a good point. point three percent of the contestants won five hundred thousand dollars or more hmm. so uh, that's that's pretty solid yes yeah. it's impressive uh, good numbers there Uh, Unfortunately, a third of the contestants did not make it to the $32,000 mark, and 22% wound up at $1,000.
1: Yeah, that doesn't shock me.
0: Yeah, the way the show worked was if you got five questions right, you won $1,000, and you could never go home with less than that. If you got 10 right, you won $32,000, and you could never go home with less than that. And if you got 15 right, then you won a million dollars. So you could choose to walk away. If you ever answered it incorrectly, you fell down to that lower tier of $32,000 or $1,000.
1: Yeah, so. they did get substantially harder after. I think just after thirty-two thousand, they started to get pretty tough.
0: Yeah, uh, certainly, you know, the first thousand dollars, those first five questions were usually pretty easy. Some of them were just kind of silly. Uh, between one thousand and thirty-two thousand, I would say there could be one or two in there that you might not know. A lot of people needed to use lifelines in there, right. uh, so there's a little bit of a how much uncertainty should I take into my answer? What should I go with kind of question? And we'll talk a little bit more about the game theory side of who wants to be a millionaire in a bit, uh, but we should probably go back to Slubdog Millionaire unless you had anything more you wanted to touch on there.
1: I was gonna give you one more fun fact, which is that Regis Philbin, although he did do a great job of hosting, was apparently kind of a diva on set.
0: Okay, I can see that.
1: And was especially uncomfortable about his height and did not like to be filmed standing up next to the contestants.
0: Did that carry over into his like his talk show that he did in the mornings?
1: I I don't remember, but I do feel like I always saw him sitting down. So maybe, maybe. I, I
0: feel like the chairs were really tall.
1: Yeah, they were. That yeah, might might have been a factor. Hmm. Well, you never know. Those big egos in Hollywood. What are you gonna do?
0: Well, folks here on uh, pennies and popcorn, I'm not super tall myself, and that's why I'm sitting too. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. I do have a little bit of height on you. It happens. It happens. Okay, so back to Slumdog Millionaire. So we should talk about um, so many things in this movie. There's obviously a lot of money topics that we could dig into. Um, you know, the main plot of the movie is trying to win 20 million rupees on the show. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting about this movie is just this idea of becoming wealthy overnight and what people do with that incredible level of newfound wealth when it just comes at them like a tidal wave all at once. So we have a short clip kind of along those lines that we can check out. Should we give it a watch? Sure. All right.
0: A few hours ago, you were giving chai for the phone wallahs and now you're richer than they will ever be what a player ladies and gentlemen what a player so this happens in the real world too right Uh, examples that maybe come to mind would be athletes and lottery winners uh, people who are on a game show like this who have won a substantial amount of money what do you do when you get all that money how do you make it last what
1: Yeah, going from being a chaiwala, which we should explain as someone who brings the tea for other people in a workplace, that is what they call him, um, to go from that making what I assume is probably minimum wage, whatever that might be in, in, in India, to suddenly having this sum of money that makes him richer than anyone else that he's ever worked with and could ever hope to work with, which we should also note, like, this clip is not from the final question. This is like somewhere in the middle. So yeah, it's an enormous responsibility, especially for an 18-year-old kid like this, to suddenly come into this massive amount of wealth. Um, I think the right answer when you are in this situation is to educate yourself. And I actually did see some really inspiring stories that were kind of in that vein. So we all have this concept in our mind that there's this like curse of winning the lottery. And I think it can certainly be a curse. You can turn it into a curse. But many of the articles that I was reading and doing research for this episode say that it's actually not quite as common as we like to think. And maybe there's a little bit of sour grapes complex into always thinking that there's a curse of the lottery because we think, oh, well, even if I won, you know it would be a terrible thing in my life. But I think it actually ends up being kind of a positive thing in a lot of winners' lives. So I found one story about a woman who won the lottery. Uh, I'm sorry, a woman who won who wants to be a millionaire. She got the top prize in the United Kingdom, and the first thing she did with her money was to purchase a four-day class to teach her how to manage her wealth. Which I just like. That's brilliant. We should all just give a huge round of applause to that woman because, yeah, what a smart way to kick off this, you know, newfound path in your life that's um, could theoretically be lined with riches, but you're choosing to maybe take a, a leaner approach and try to make it last and truly make it life changing instead of buying a lot of glittery things that are not gonna end up making a a long-term impact on your health and happiness and well-being.
0: So I did some digging for some data on athletes and it hasn't worked out quite as well maybe as it sounds like people who've won the lottery or won a game show have done. Uh, I don't know how old these numbers are or how how accurate they are, but I think they align with our cultural understanding. Uh, 78% of NFL players are in some state of financial distress within two years of leaving the league and 60% of nba players are similarly in financial distress within 5 years of leaving the league. I believe those sports leagues have recognized this this challenge and have tried to make it a little bit easier doing some education for people after they've been drafted or after they make the teams and kind of the the rookie orientation trying to make sure that people recognize that hey this is a it's not going to last forever and their newfound success and stardom Uh, is something that should be cherished and and should be used as a tool to set themselves up for success in life rather than as a tool to live it up in the moment and struggle right after.
1: Yeah. And I think so much of the pressure, especially for athletes to live a crazy extravagant lifestyle is because they are very much in the public eye. And we have this culture of celebrity worship, right? We love for our celebrities to look flawless, to live a flawless life. You know, we want to see them in MTV cribs, which I realize I'm dating myself. I don't think that's MTV anymore. (laughs) But there's still plenty of things that are in that vein where people like to show off their homes. They show off their wardrobes. They show off their cars. And yeah, that whole mentality of just worshiping this luxurious lifestyle is so pervasive. And I think those athletes are falling victim to it because they feel like they have to fill that role for everybody else.
0: Yeah. There's actually a little celebrity worship in Slumdog Millionaire. I don't know if you remember this scene.
1: How Uh, could you forget this scene? I know what you're going to say.
0: For those of you who haven't seen it in a while, there's a period where uh, there is a movie star who comes and flies in on a helicopter to the slums where Jamal and Salim are living. This is while their mother is still alive. Uh, they're entrepreneurial young boys, even at, at, at that early age. They are. And they are running an outhouse. Is that what you say they're
1: running? I think that's fairly accurate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Jamal is using the outhouse, even though they have a client who would like to use it. He hears the helicopter come by. He looks through the slats in the wood, can tell that it's this famous celebrity, and he has to go out and see him. Salim, frustrated that Jamal has prevented them from getting some money from a client who wanted to use their facilities, decides to play a prank and lock Jamal in the outhouse and stop him from going. Sure enough, Jamal isn't going to be deterred. (laughs) Instead of climbing up and over the walls of the outhouse, he decides to drop down through the floor into the bottom of the outhouse, which <laughs> yeah. is a big old pile of human feces.
1: Indeed it is. Yeah. Yeah. To help you picture this, it's kind of like, a, like an outhouse on stilts. So it's kind of above a river type yeah. swampy, marshy thing. So, yeah, he jumps down into a pile of steaming human poo, And he is holding a picture of this celebrity, which he holds high up above his head as he jumps down, holding his nose into the um, pile. And the picture miraculously makes it out clean, even though poor Jamal is covered head to toe in human waste. Um, But he is able to wade out of this uh, pit, marsh, and get up to his hero, the celebrity, um, and get his signature on the page. So this is not the only mean thing that Salim does to Jamal in the movie, but it does make for an unforgettable scene of adorable little Jamal holding his picture up in the air, just triumphant well covered in poop.
0: So I think the question that I'm wondering and that our entire audience is wondering, Carla, is which celebrity would you swim through poop to to meet?
1: I mean, it's gotta be Gwyneth Paltrow. She's just so spot on with everything she does. No, I'm obviously, well, I assure you, I am joking. I am not a enormous fan of Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't think there is uh, anybody that I would jump in a pile of human poop for.
0: Yeah, I think I'd have to be saving that celebrity to go jump out and meet
1: Yeah, them, you know? yeah, I would probably do it to save save a life. But definitely not to get an autograph. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That would not be good enough incentive for me. So
0: you jump in to save a life so long as it's not Chris Harrison. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So this scene doesn't end there. Salim, being the not-so-nice brother that he ends up growing up to be, uh, takes this picture that is Jamal's newfound prized possession that he swam through poop to get. And and while the mother is cleaning up Jamal and just... (laughs) Getting him back to a state of normalcy. Salim takes off of the picture and goes and sells it for a few coins.
1: Yes. Uh, ah, Salim. Salim makes a lot of mistakes in this movie. Does a lot of unkind things. And that is definitely, definitely one of them.
0: So we both have brothers. If one of our brothers had done that sort of thing to us, just excommunicated for life. What do you think?
1: I mean, if I'd swum through poop to get an autograph from someone... I don't know. It would have been tough.
0: It yeah, I, been think, tough. I think they'd be shunned forever.
1: <laughs> I think that might I think be. It's the only
0: acceptable response.
1: Yeah, it would definitely not have been a happy, happy uh, siblinghood after that, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there is a big challenge in life if you somehow fall into a ton of money trying to find your way to make it work. I'm not sure celebrity worship and try to live it up like the celebrities is the best way to do it. But anyway...
1: Another interesting topic that this movie touches on is the idea of class, that there are these different classes of people, and some of them are just inherently better than others. So we have a short clip where um, we see poor Jamal, who, one thing we didn't note in the plot summary, has literally been tortured by the showrunners because they simply can't accept the fact that Jamal would have gotten these answers correct. So they are torturing him in an effort to convince him to confess that he has been cheating the entire time. So we see um, Jamal here being tortured and two of the men kind of discussing um, whether he cheated or not.
0: What if he didn't know the answers? (laughs) Professors, doctors, lawyers, General knowledge, Wallace, never get beyond 16,000 rupees. He's on 10 million. What the hell can a slum dog possibly know? The answers. I knew the answers.
1: Ah, this clip just gets to me. This poor kid, you know? He's been through so much in life, which I think by this point in the film, we've seen a lot of... The trials and tribulations he's been through and now here he is having his moment where so much of what he's been through is literally paying off because he knows the answers to these questions and these guys just straight up don't believe that a quote slum dog could have possibly gotten to where he is
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I I think I've heard the saying a bunch in life that uh, ability is uniformly distributed, but opportunity is not. And I think this is the perfect scenario. This kid has a brilliant memory. He's able to remember all these things. Obviously important things in our lives are burned into our memory with a lot of detail, but nevertheless, we all have learned lots of trivia over the years and most of us don't retain it. And he's been able to keep a bunch of information uh, with his exceptional ability I think the classism that's shown here, which certainly India has a bigger challenge than some other places in the world, certainly at the time this movie was produced, uh, dealing with classism. But even in the United States, we have our own kind of challenges with people not really respecting the abilities of others, depending on what they're doing in life, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And where they've come from and who they already know and who their parents know. And of course, the color of their skin. There are so many factors that can be just a huge strike against somebody that have no business being a strike against somebody because they're not related at all to their actual abilities and how hard of a worker they're going to be and how quickly they can learn. I mean, all of the factors that make somebody a great employee, you can't tell any of that by looking at a person or knowing where they grew up. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it isn't very real and that there aren't so many people out there who will deny you opportunities if you're coming from that. And this this clip just illustrates that so perfectly to the point where they're literally torturing this boy because it's just completely unfathomable that, you know, where professors and doctors and lawyers have failed. This kid's going to win. Come on. It's just they just can't believe it. They just can't.
0: Yeah. It kind of makes me think about the United States, right? We sort of have this inherent class system between people who have gone to college and people who haven't, which I really, really hate. Um, I hate the idea that we sort of set up that you have to go do some advanced education in order to be successful in life, which I think is sort of the message that that we beat like a drum into students these days.
1: Yeah, it's very true for me. Growing up, it was simply not even a question of whether you would go to college. So yeah, it's it really is a shame because it's not right for everybody. I was one of the lucky ones. I really enjoyed college and got a lot out of it, but that's just not the case for so many folks. And it's crazy that we try to stick everybody into that one path when it just doesn't work for so many folks.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of other ways to get, a, get ahead. You don't need to have a whole bunch of advanced education. You just need to work hard. You need to have good ideas. You need to have good execution. You need to surround yourself with people who work hard with you and want to help your dream come to reality. I think it's one of the fun things we've had in our uh, partnership with the Mile High Five podcast. We've, had, we've listened to a lot of their shows and seen all their guests who've been successful in life through a whole variety of different avenues. And there's not just this one straightforward path to, to life success that maybe we're sort of bred to believe growing up in, in school.
1: I think another huge piece of the puzzle to eventually becoming financially stable and successful is frugality, right? And being smart about, um, how you invest your money and being smart about smart about how you spend it. So all of those are factors that eventually lead people towards success and you'd be hard-pressed to find a college class that'll teach you how to be frugal and how to invest your money wisely. Um, it's, it's even more so at the, the high school level. It's just not something that they they teach in schools, which is such a shame. But
0: So Jamal Zahn, who wants to be a millionaire, let's talk a little bit about his performance in the show and some of the choices that he makes while he is in the hot seat. So... His trivia knowledge is not super deep. They asked him a question early on that the, the host kind of laughed at because it was so easy. It was like the in the U.S. version, one of those under $1,000 questions where surely everybody knows the answer. And poor Jamal just didn't have the life experiences to be set up to, to answer that question. And he used his Ask the Audience lifeline and they helped him out. Virtually everybody got the question right. But it seemed pretty clear that, oh... This kid's going to struggle. He doesn't know so much. Uh, And and as the show progresses, question after question, relate to things that he's seen in his life. And he's able to actually know the answer with confidence. But as he gets into the harder questions, the questions, um, I believe there's one. He has five million rupees that he's already won. He's on the 10 million rupee question. And it is a a question about a famous uh, cricket player. And he just doesn't know the answer. His only life experience with cricket seemed to be watching it in a brief fleeting moment where he'd reconnected with Latika before getting kicked out of her house and uh, not really knowing anything more. Mm -hmm. He uses his 50-50 lifeline and gets it down to two answers. But he doesn't really know which of the two to choose. And so this is an interesting conundrum. Right, He has the chance to take his 5 million rupees, turn it into 10, and then potentially turn it into 20 million rupees. Or he can walk away with the five that he has. And he's got this sort of 50-50 shot at the question. Now, actually in the movie, the host feeds him an answer that is incorrect. And Jamal kind of reads him. Jamal is obviously figured out how to make a living in some devious ways as a child and has certainly gotten really good at reading people. And I'm sure. I, I think he you know, concluded that the host was, you know, maybe faking him out a little bit. And so he goes and guesses the opposite of the remaining answer, uh, the, the one remaining answer that wasn't fed to him. And it ends up being right. But we should talk a little about the game theory of that and whether that's a smart thing to do or a crazy thing to do. Cause when you're on a show like this, you don't get very many shots, right? And when you miss and you have to give up the vast majority of what you've already won, you're not going to get another chance to go do that. At the same time, you want to give yourself as many opportunities, as many bites at the apple as you can to get a life changing amount of money. Right? Right. If you're going to be on who wants to be a millionaire, you shouldn't walk away with $4,000 because you're afraid you're going to lose guessing on the $8,000 question uh, and go back down to $1,000, because $4,000, well, who's going to say no to $4,000 additional dollars? It's not a life-altering sum of money, really, for anyone. You'll just use it up so fast. It's not going to fundamentally change your life, but you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars really could. So you want to give yourself as many chances as you can. So it's kind of interesting. He decides to guess on one of the late questions where he's got 5 million rupees already, which... You know it was hundred thousand hundred and hundred thousand dollars in change uh, at the time and it, instead of just taking the money and running which is kind of fascinating so did you think he made the right call obviously it's a movie we know in this kind of situation the protagonist <laughs> is likely to get it right and we also know that he's on the show trying to reconnect with latika and hoping his fame and presence on this you know cultural phenomenon will bring him closer to her but if it were you would you have guessed on that question
1: I can say with confidence, I almost certainly would not have. I'm generally a pretty risk averse person. When you and I started investing in the stock market, it was very difficult for me because it just felt like gambling. And now I have a much deeper understanding of it and feel comfortable doing it for, you know, a long period of time. But I am not a gambler in any way, shape or form. So I feel confident I would not have done it.
0: I think if you are a trivia pro, like if you are somebody like a, a multi-time Jeopardy champion who thinks that you have the talent to go answer the final question, which is going to likely be very difficult, it may be reasonable to guess here. It could be, but it's pretty dubious. I think, I think you're winning enough money here that your chances... Your expected value is greater, surely, by guessing here in the 50 50 situation and having a chance at that last question. But it is, the the volatility is huge. And I don't know if, I think you're winning enough of a life changing amount of money that you should probably take it and move on. But he does get the question right. And he gets a final Jeopardy question that he doesn't know. That's Uh, right. And he decides to use his phone to friend, right? Uh, Jamal. He's poor. Like he, He's doing well in the show, but in real life, he's poor. He doesn't have relationships or contacts. The only phone number that he knows is his brother Salim's phone number. Yeah. Uh, and Salim has had a similar set of life experiences. He would not be uh, the ideal person to call, I don't think, but it's the only number he knew, as we had plugged in. Uh, and as part of a plot point, Salim was able to get his phone to Latika and help Latika escape. And the next clip we're going to show you is Jamal calling Salim and being surprised to hear who's on the other end of the phone.
1: Yeah, let's take a listen. Is that really you?
0: Yes. The question, Jamal, the question.
1: In Alexander Dumas' book, The Three Musketeers, two of the Musketeers are called Athos and Portos. What was the name
0: of the third Musketeer? Was it A? Aramis B. Cardinal Rishu C. D'Artagnan. D. Blanche. 15 seconds. Where are you? I'm safe. 10 seconds. Uh, Latika, what do you think?
1: I don't know. I've never known. Ah, uh, That clip is so tense you can just feel all the emotion that's been building up to it so yeah like jamal is obviously using a tiny a portion of his tiny amount of time to ask latika where she is because you know i think most of this for him has been about trying to find her and get on a public platform and here he has a chance to talk to her so yeah very sweet and touching moment um where he is down to the final question. And as we mentioned at the beginning, Jamal and Salim always called themselves the two musketeers and Jamal thought of Vlatica as the third musketeer, but just through twists of fate, none of them have ever been able to find out the name of the third musketeer. And here it is, 20 million rupees on the line and this little factoid that's managed to escape them all their lives is what's gonna make a difference for them. So what's the right strategy here?
0: So in my opinion, if you have no idea on the answer here, you have to walk away. It's crazy to take a one in four shot, or even if you can eliminate like Cardinal Richelieu as an example, uh, as, as an answer that's just totally wrong, you're still not in a place where you can be successful, right? You, you lose, if it's in the US version, you'd have $500,000 and you're going for a million. And if you get it wrong, you lose over 90% of that money and go back to $32,000. It is a huge gut punch to lose that much money on a one in three, one in four shot, just taking a random guess. So there is, there's, and there's no expected value benefit, like future questions that you could get right. Like I said, you should gamble early in the game to give yourself bites at the apple later in the game, but this is the very end. There's nowhere else to go. If you, you know, this is it. You either get it or you lose it. Why would you take such a, a big gamble to only double your money? A chance, a one in four chance of doubling your money or a three in four chance of losing over 90% of it.
1: Yeah, it does not seem like a great gamble to me. I certainly would not have taken the risk. Um, also, side note, you can't really tell just from this clip, but Latica is not an extremely crowded place when she picks up this phone call. And it just makes me crazy that she wouldn't have just been shouting to the crowd. What were the names of the three musketeers? Somebody tell me quick. Yeah. But instead we just see her saying, I don't know. But I get it. It's movie magic. It's a very sweet moment between the two of them.
0: I think there's also the question that we've had that we had that I had back in high school, that I had in college, that I guess I would've had for a long time, watching if I were a long-term fan of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is, why aren't people just Googling that, <laughs> yeah. right? You've yeah. got 30 seconds. If you know you are somebody's phone a friend, I don't know if you can set up more than one or if it's just one, but you know, if you're somebody's phone a friend person, why aren't you sitting in front of a computer ready to go? And as soon as they ask the question, you're typing it in. Most of the questions are googleable some of them might take a little bit of time to find an answer, but surely that's the best path to go.
1: Yeah, your phone a friend should be the best typist that you know <laughs> can type the the fastest. So that's actually what happened in real life. Is so the show starts in August of 1999, okay. which is but maybe Google was in existence, but it certainly wasn't like a thing. Um, yeah, so that would have been a pretty long period of time before Google became as widespread as it
0: is. Sure, yeah. Web searches wouldn't have been as prominent of a solution. Not everybody would have fast internet at home at the time. right?
1: Yeah, you would have been, even a few years after the show started, people probably would have been using Ask Jeeves and waiting like 45 seconds (laughs) to get any kind of response back from the internet, right? So, Yeah. yeah, it was not a problem when the show first came out. But eventually, because as you noted, the show's been around forever and is still mind-bogglingly, on the air today, um, they have cut it off. I think they cut it off in, like, 2010. Mm -hmm. So phone a friend is no more. You can no longer just ask your fastest typing friend to be a freebie for any question.
0: So (laughs) Jamal, in 2008... Probably had uh, other people he could have reached out to who might have known the answer to this question. I feel like this was kind of an easy final millionaire question because uh, in 1998, I believe it was 98, I might be getting my years wrong, there was a huge blockbuster hit called The Man in the Iron Mask that came out. I've heard of it. Yeah. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio. I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's all about the three musketeers.
1: Indeed it is.
0: Yeah, it stars uh, John Malkovich as Athos, Gerard Depardieu as Porthos, and Jeremy Irons as...
1: Aramis.
0: Aramis, the third musketeer. So A was the correct answer. Spoiler alert, Jamal guesses A and gets it correct with just a total random shot in the dark. But yeah, the man in the iron mask would have been a great piece of trivia knowledge to use going into the show. I remember the movie... I was looking it up just before we did this recording. Did you know that this movie debuted at number two in 1998 at the box office behind another Leonardo DiCaprio flick that was pretty successful at the time, Titanic? So he was definitely, you know, leading the charts in his late 90s.
1: He was. He definitely was. Those were, those were his major heartthrob years. Also, when it wasn't creepy that he was dating like 20 year olds because he was a 20 year old. Now it's creepy. 21, 23 years later.
0: Do you think Leo thought he was a shoe in to win an Oscar that year with two Smash Hits?
1: Did he win an Oscar that year? No, no. that's right, because yeah. his first Oscar was recent. Yeah, yeah with The Revenant. What, yeah. So
0: I think he probably thought he had a better shot with Titanic than The Man in the Iron Mask. But he played two roles in that movie. So. Yeah,
1: I don't, I mean, yeah. The Man in the Iron Mask was basically just the parent trap. Of France? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One actor playing dual roles and... Yeah. (laughs) Although one twin was substantially nicer than the other twin in the Man in the Iron Mask, whereas they were both pretty all right in The Parent Trap.
0: It Depends on which version you're talking about.
1: That's true. I am partial to the Hayley Mills version, I have to say.
0: I've seen that one a lot more, but, you know, Lindsay Lohan... Always has a special place in my heart.
1: That's true. She does star in Mean Girls, which is one of our favorite movies of all time.
0: Okay. So back to the show, he ends up winning the million, the 20 million rupees, right? Uh, His life has changed forever. Latika is free. They end up connecting together. But I think an underlying question that we should be asking ourselves when thinking about this kind of movie is, can money buy happiness?
1: Yeah, it's such a huge and powerful and deep and complicated question I think we are being dishonest with ourselves if we just give it a blanket no across the board. I think money absolutely can buy happiness because it can buy security, can buy peace of mind, it can buy comfort, and none of those things automatically equate to happiness, but it is dramatically harder to be happy without them. So, yeah,
0: I think uh, a big influx of money can buy safety and stability, which are two key points in my mind, to happiness. Um, I think it just creates flexibility. It it creates the opportunity for you to choose a little bit more about what you want out of life uh, rather than being in the difficult position that Jamal is in in the movie where he really feels like he doesn't have a lot of choice because of some of the classism. He just isn't able to get ahead or, you know, earn enough money to take care of his basics in life. But by... By having a lot of money, you certainly have a chance to take care of those basics. But I think there's kind of a, once you have that down, it's a little bit more on you to figure it out.
1: Yeah, when we, the last time that we see Jamal in school, he's well under the age of 10, right? He's probably anywhere between the ages of like 5 and 7. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would, I would Very guess he's young. 5.
1: Yeah, so he has not had an opportunity to go to school. He's just been living hand-to-mouth and getting by for the vast majority of his life. So, yeah, this is a ticket to opportunity. It's a ticket to education, safety. And, of course, in this particular case, it's a chance for him to be able to reunite with the girl that he loves and for them to start a new life together. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that money can go a long way towards bringing someone happiness. And this is such a heartwarming and wonderful story. Um, A few years after Slumdog Millionaire came out in 2008, there was actually a quote, real life Slumdog Millionaire. There was a gentleman who won the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I believe in 2012. And he got the full, actually in real life, At least at this point, it was 50 million rupees that he won, which is much closer to about 1 million U.S. dollars. And he has apparently used the money very wisely. He's been spending it extremely slowly, um, used it to buy a actually build, I think, a very modest but comfortable house and get transportation, um, further his education and kind of take a new direction in life. But he still has the vast majority of his winnings and savings and is just trying to spend it slowly and use it to, to really be a launching pad for a new, more stable and happier
0: life. Sounds like he's made life upgrades that actually make a difference in terms of his happiness rather than uh, allow him to join in, in that celebrity type culture and, and sort of super visible you know, wealth.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So his name is Sushil Kumar. So big round of applause to you, Sushil Kumar. We are big fans of you. Not only was he smart enough and clever enough to get all the way through to the the winning prize on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but he's done a really fabulous job um, spending it wisely. So, yeah, there are a lot of folks out there who have done great things with their winnings and used it to really change their lives, which I think is a pretty inspiring takeaway from a story like this. Agreed. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Pennies and Popcorn.
0: Take care.